Good afternoon. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. Hope you're having a nice, sunny Tuesday. You know who's not? Toronto Blue Jays, maybe. Uh, it is looking dicey in the Boston weather reports right now. Hopefully, though, after what will be a rare day off the rest of the way, hopefully, the Jays are back in action tonight. 7.05, first pitch with Ben Wagner on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Assuming the game gets going. Uh, we're going to get rolling here in a minute. couple tiny updates for you. Tim Mays is back. Two weeks after separating his shoulder, dislocating his shoulder. I know it's his non-throwing shoulder. As someone who has dislocated their shoulder before and had it not completely heel set. I hope he's all right. Uh, one rehab outing because he was able to keep throwing uh, during the time off. So that's a great, that's great news for the Blue Jays bullpen. Zach pop has been optioned to triple a Buffalo. It's a bit of a obvious one. If you believed them that you say Kikuchi is staying in the bullpen for a while and not get, not staying stretched out for the, String of doubleheaders ahead. So Yusei Kikuchi remains in the bullpen for now. We'll see if that leads to any actual appearances. Um, we've got lots to talk about. Usually the second the second day after an off day could be a tough one, but we just loaded up the guests for today. We got Chris Cotillo later uh, to talk about the Red Sox side of things. We got Eno Saris coming on. Uh, we got to look at Ross Stripling. He did a Mitch White dive. Lots of fun stuff there, but it's Tuesday and it's three o'clock. So we're also joined by Chris Black to my left, producer at Sportsnet. Hey, buddy. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And we also have on the line uh, on Blue Jay Central tonight, Joe Siddle. Joe, how are you? Fantastic, gentlemen. How are we doing? We are doing well. Uh, did you miss Chris? He's he's had the tennis. He's had the <laughs> Global Jam. He's had the Global vacation. What? I think he's been at the cottage for a few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Golf course. <laughs> Reunited tonight from Blue yes, Jay Central. Yes. We're very excited and praying to the rain gods. Yes. <laughs> Although, I, doesn't it? I know that it might stretch you guys a little thin and use all your material for the series. But, Joe, if it's a rain delay at any point, that's just Joe Siddle time, isn't it? Well, sometimes we go to another game. It all depends on who's producing and how good that producer is. <laughs> so the heat will be on him, not me. <laughs> that's uh, that's great. No, no pressure, Chris. Um, all right. So I know Chris has been in the. He's got a yellow legal pad here in front of him, Joe. That's how serious we're getting today. I know there are two things that Chris has been looking at a lot. Uh, one being Alec Manoa. We're going to talk about Alec Manoa a little bit later. But the big one is something that is fascinating to me because it tends to be an easy point of frustration for fans of any team, not just the Jays, when it feels like a team isn't hitting enough in big spots. The Jays, though, have been roughly an average offense in those big spots. Runners in scoring position or high leverage, however you want to slice it, um, which sounds okay, except they're the number three offense in baseball overall. So if you're number three overall and you're just average in those big spots, you're underperforming. And the two faces of the team on the position player side have been emblematic of that in Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette. 
and it's I say it's fascinating because it's an easy one to glob onto because you you think of one plate appearance where bases loaded two out, ah, oh, Vlad grounds out, and that sticks with you in a way that maybe other, you know, there's that's just a bigger moment. But in this case, Chris, statistically, it bears out that Vlad has not been the same guy this year in those big spots that he was last year. Yeah, so the big the big moment was Sunday, bases loaded, as you alluded to. Um, chased three pitches out of the strike zone, grounded out, and that's, as you said, something that fans latch on to. It's a frustrating moment. And I think it's partly frustrating because of how much he came through in those moments last year. He was unbelievable. But the big thing when you do, when you dive into the numbers is this isn't something that's just a year-over-year comparison. This is something that... It actually goes back to since August of last year. So we're not we're now talking over a full kind of slate of games or a full calendar year of struggles where he's essentially been Kiner Falefa in terms of in terms of performance in these moments with runners in scoring positions. So I think the natural my first question was, okay, is it just he's just not as good of a hitter as last year, which overall he's not the best hitter in baseball like he was last year. Um, but when you looked at the numbers, he was 12%. He's 12% year-over-year worse with no runners in scoring position. That doubles if you go to runners in scoring position. It's 24% less and 37% with risp and two out. So this is something that fe- it's, it is a bigger issue than just year-over-year. He's not as good. So Vlad hasn't been quite as effective overall, but that quite as effective becomes period. Vlad hasn't been as effective when you narrow in on these big spots. Um, Joe, before we let Chris get into some of the specifics of the numbers, is that something you've felt and picked up on as the season's gone on? Just kind of that feeling that Vlad isn't as deadly, I guess, in those big moments? I haven't really necessarily latched onto that or, or jumped at until Chris had mentioned it to me. And the reason I say that is, Despite how great his numbers are, he's he's still a really good major league hitter. Obviously, oh, yeah. he's not the he's not the Vladdy we know from last year. And I have seen some examples, and I'll I'll, I'll watch in that bat once in a while. I'll get a side view, and I'll really break down the swing, and I'll just see something that's a little different. I just thought last year he was a little bit more of a a dynamic type hitter, using his bottom half a little bit more. I'll look at his load and his body position, and then the actual swing plane itself. I think he seems rushed at times. And we, I mean, since his rookie season, I think I've been saying, wow, this guy's got a lot of movement to swing. This will be interesting to watch. And with all of that movement, I think this year, as opposed to last year, he's getting caught. And when your timing turns out to be a little bit late, you rush as a hitter. And I'm just not seeing what we thought was what I like to call that deep barrel turn where hitters can really stay behind the baseball. Well, think of like an Aaron judge because he does it so, so well. And it's so extreme because he's one of the best on the planet, but that's what good hitters, especially Vladdy, had done. And we had seen that so much, I think, especially, too, with the other ballparks. I remember the broadcast last year. You know, Blackwood mentioned it several times when they were playing in Dunedin, how the hitters almost changed their approach, kind of thinking right center. And it's almost what we see in Yankees hitters in Yankee Stadium right now. Like, they do change that approach. Anytime hitters think that awful gap, just think it, that mindset, it tends to help your hitting mechanics because you stay behind the ball a little bit better and handle pitchers better. It seems to me with this year, Vladdy, I'll look at the swing seems a little steeper, that the, the hand path is a little steeper, and it kind of explains his ground balls. It kind of explains kind of cutting the ball and popping it up. 
those things you do when you're late and you're rushing. So those things have been in my head all year. I've been watching him in those regards, but I haven't looked at these numbers that Chris is going to be presenting and has presented, but now it's like, Oh, okay. So maybe some things are making sense, but ultimately what he's going to talk to you about is how pitchers are pitching him. And that's really fascinating. Yeah. I like what Joe mentioned right off the top there. Like, I always try to add this preamble with Vlad. He's still their best hitter by a mile. Right, but that's why we have to talk about him when exactly. these things come up because the Jays are going to go how Vlad goes yeah. in the biggest of games or, or series, I think. Yeah, and like the struggles are, and even these struggles are relative a little bit. Like we're talking a, an 800 OPS as opposed to an 1100 OPS in these big moments. So he's still a good hitter. Um, I did dive into one of these questions I haven't put in the Twitter thread but something I dove into was checking to see if some of the numbers last year were um, Dunedin, Buffalo specific. But even in those good moments, he was just as good on the road as well. Right. So it wasn't something where it was just he was just feasting on those ballparks. I do think there is something to that. But so essentially, when I dove into the numbers to kind of see what was going on with Vladdy in these big moments, there's two kind of big things that stand out. One, he's seeing a lot more breaking balls and cutters in these big moments than he used to. And I think that's reacting to just Vladdy sitting more fastball this year. I think that's just something that's more of a feel thing that Joe and I, he used to sit off speed quite a bit last year. And I don't think that's happening as much. And I think teams have reacted to that. And the other thing was he used to dive in uh, and ambush first pitches quite a bit in these big moments. That hasn't happened. And that's partly teams have res- responded to that. They saw that last year, and they are staying away from giving him anything over the plate on first pitches. So, Joe, I know that the overly reductive answer is, well, just don't swing at the first pitch then. And if they steal a strike on you, they steal a strike on you. Um, but what is the the prescription for that? And I, I know Chris has a, a little bit more data situationally, but that's something that's that's pretty noticeable. And maybe it's not even that noticeable because, like, yeah, of course, if Vlad's up there with runners on second and third and two out, would I throw him a first pitch fastball? Absolutely not. And if I do, it's not going to be anywhere near the sweet spots. But as a hitter, Joe, how do you how do you adjust to that knowing you're going to get a lot more off-speed or breaking stuff, but you're hoping at some point in the at-bat that you get a fastball you can put a charge in? I imagine it's a little tough to keep the pace of your swing up for both of those scenarios. Well, that's the chess game, right? And I, I loved watching the game last night, Scherzer against Judge, because you talk about a chess match. He threw one fastball to Judge, and Judge just stared at it. I'm looking, watching this game going, wow, Judge is sitting on his slider, which is a little strange to me because it's a pretty good slider. Well, then he tried to sneak another one by later, the slider. So it's just, it, it really is that head game that you're talking about right there. But I think with the Blue Jays offense, it got off to a slow start this year, and I, I'm sure they were all pressing a little bit. We heard the hitting coaches talking like that. To a man, they're pushing, pressing a little bit. The expectations were really high coming in. So you try to do a little bit too much. And when you do that, what do you do? You expand the zone a little bit. So we see Vladdy doing that. And if you're looking for a first pitch breaking ball and you get one, oftentimes hitters will swing at it, even though maybe it starts middle away and it ends up away. You guessed right. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you swing at it. Now, that doesn't mean he can't ambush something <clears throat> like a hanger right over the middle of the plate because he'll get those. And I don't doubt he will do that. But that, that's where you have to be so disciplined in your approach. And Schneider's talked to that about, about Vladdy a little bit, too, over these last couple of months. When he is better with his swing decisions, and that goes for everybody, obviously, 
that's when you're going to get results and not be afraid to take the walk. And I think there are times, lots of times right now, where Vladdy's not, not taking those pitches, not walking as much. And, you know, you hear the old pass the baton. Well, you know, Tasker's not having the same year. Good year, but not the same year. You know, Springer's not having the same year. Bo certainly not having the same year. Kirky's helping out. Guriel's helping out. But it could just be that whole feeling. You know, he's trying to be a hero all the time. And that's where he has to be better. And I think if he does start taking those pitches and swinging at the ones he's looking for on the plate, that's when he becomes lethal. Take your walks. And that's when, as a, they, they talk about process all the time, that's when they have to do that as a unit. And because we've seen pitchers handle them all very well. And I think that's happened. They get into that rut. And, and for Vladi, yeah, you, you can't try to do it all. I do think there's one other kind of stat or note about this process that Joe alluded to, and that's a willingness to go the other way. Um, when you look at his numbers in these moments, when he hits the ball the other way, the numbers are the exact same. So when he puts a ball to right field, center field, in the air, line driver, fly ball, the outcomes are the exact same. It's just he's not doing it as much. Last year in these moments, he... I think 22 balls in play the other way. This year, just seven. Yeah, and I I was interested in that. So what I did was I looked at who are the best Blue Jays hitting in those situations so far this year. And Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and Teoscar Hernandez are two of the top three. Kirk's the other one. We're talking about three guys who the story on all three of them at different points this year has been, well, they're using the whole field more. 100%. And Vladdy, Vladdy is at his best, and we all kind of know this. He's not... It is fun to watch him back leg, tee off on a breaking ball, put it third deck, second deck at, at Rogers Center. But he's at his best when he is driving line drives, two irons to center field or right center. Oh, that Yankee Stadium home run. Oh, Perfect. Not all... that that goes out anywhere else, but yeah. still. But that's that's when he's at his best, and that's when his swing is locked in. Like, I, I don't care if he pulls a ball and hits it into and he hits it 400 feet to left field, like he will have the best results when he's going the other way. So I do I do think that the one more thing is I don't think it's a coincidence that this stuff ties into when they came back to Toronto last year. I do think there's something to playoff race, wanting to be good for this crowd, and I do think we should all remember he is 23 years old. Yeah, And, and I think we forget that sometimes. And I wonder too, Joe, if when, when Chris says, you know, there's, there's obviously a an element here that goes beyond just the numbers we could throw at it, of course. Like big situations, feeling the pressure of being the guy, um, th those are real factors that players go through that we we can't really touch the same way. Um, but one of the things you can look at maybe that, that helps us take a look at that is with two strikes, he's swinging a lot of bad stuff. And that's, you know, that wasn't the book on Vlad coming up. Um, so, Joe, I mean, you talk to players all the time. Is there... Or, or how do you navigate that element of wanting to carry the team, but this knowledge that maybe you have to sit back and not think like that to do it? Yeah, it's as a unit that you have to convince each other and all be on the same page that we are in this together. And if I don't get it done, I'll pass it on to you. It really, it really is that mentality. And I think getting back to the kind of middle oppo approach is that hitters will tell you that puts them in a good position. And anytime you get in pull mode, and we've seen Vladdy do that a lot, number one, you, sometimes you'll kind of, we call it cheat to get out there because to pull the ball, you want to catch it out front. Well, to catch it out front, you got to get the barrel out there. So you cheat out there. Well, as soon as you're doing that, now that's that rushing I'm talking about. When you do that, you're not going to pick up spin on the breaking ball as well. 
that makes you very susceptible to those chases. So that's another, I think of like, uh, you know, not to pick on Danny Jansen, but like a Danny Jansen's kind of fastball pull hitter. He's admitted to that, right? That's when he feels he's best. And, but you can see why that's why he's also so susceptible to the spin because you're not going to pick up that spin as well. And you're going to chase it. Now, is he going to run into some? Absolutely. That timing is going to be perfect every once in a while. And you run into some like you did earlier in the year, but it's not an ideal approach. The other thing is when you're getting out there that soon and cheating to it. And I think, you know, Chris and I talked about Trevino the other day. I thought that cutter away that he swung at, he chased, it was off the plate, but it also looked like he was leaking a little bit and cheating to try to pull something maybe looking more middle in. And then when you do that, there's that fastball that gets on you now because you haven't created that space by that deeper turn I was talking about when your mindset is more right center. So I do think getting back to the ballparks, like last year, just playing in that ballpark in Dunedin, say, to start the season, it just it may have changed an overall mindset and approach of hitters that they took on the road with them too. So it could have been an overall turn, but – I think as a unit, and I'm sure the hitting coaches are just harping on that, trying, 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 because they talk so much about swing decisions. And when they're not making these good swing decisions, we've seen them very susceptible to pitching. Joe, when you mention that you, you kind of explain some of the chase stuff as maybe cheating out a little bit to pull the fastball and then you're susceptible to the, the spin or the off-speed stuff, would that also be a decent explanation for why Vlad tends to hit the ball on the ground so much when he pulls it that he has pretty good plate coverage still, so instead of swinging and missing at some of those, he's still getting a bat on it. It's just not a great bat on it. Yes, and I think not only the breaking balls because you're getting out there and when you're out front, you roll over because you're getting out there cheating, say, to a fastball, and it spins, so you're out front, and you roll it over. But also the fastballs, because I've seen him, you'll see him, like, like jammed on fastballs, and that's a, a timing I'm referring to, so he's a little late with his timing. So as a hitter, because you're late, your immediate reaction is to get your barrel there as quickly as possible to the ball, because nobody wants to get jammed. But to do that, you take a steeper path to the ball. When you take a steeper path, that's actually not a good path to the baseball because now that ball's on you and it jams you or that steeper path pounds it into the ground. Or as I said, cuts the ball and pops it up. Those are the things they think are the result of getting beat with fastballs. So those, are, you know, whether it's a fastball or breaking ball, it's not necessarily a good result. The problem, the problem with Vladdy is we, you look at his exit velocity, he can hit a ball 105 miles per hour on the ground. He could be 0 for 3 in the seventh inning, but somebody will say, oh, he's hit three balls 105 miles per hour. It's true, but at the same time, one was a ground ball to second, two were ground balls to short. So they're, they're, they're hit really hard just because of his DNA. He's, he's a freak, but they're not good swings for Vladdy. Right. Um, so I know you guys are going to talk more about this on Blue Jay Central tonight. Uh, I don't want to spoil all your Blue Jay Central stuff for the series or maybe just for tonight if we get a rain delay. Um, I don't know. Actually, I don't even know if this will come up till the Angels series because Alec Manoa, we don't have the, the confirmed starters all the way through, but he currently lines up to start Saturday against Shohei Otani, which, guys, if you're not doing anything Saturday afternoon, <laughs> Shohei Otani is like number one on the list of must-see guys right now, and he's facing the Jays' ace. Um, so, Chris, I know... I know you've had some thoughts on Manoa. You've kind of been monitoring this slow kind of uptick in the ERA and downtick in swing and miss stuff. Did you come out of that last start encouraged with the eight strikeouts and the fact that he was missing bats into the sixth inning? Yes and no. Like I, I Mike Petriello is going to be on tonight to talk more about Manoa. I think the interesting part is, and we've talked, this comes up every time he pitches and it just feels like it's, been coming up a lot in the second half of the season is 
he's battling. He's battling without his best stuff. And I think I just I'd feel a lot more comfortable if he had his best stuff. If we saw that, if we saw the two seamer that was breaking uh, right across the zone and jamming guys, if we saw the slider that was making guys swing and miss, um, I think it's just as you said, it's been kind of a slow kind of burn that we've seen. And I think the biggest his best attribute, even early in the year, what we've always talked about when we talked about him is we can't quite figure out how he does it. But one thing we know is he avoids hard contact. Um, he avoids barrels. Um, we always said it must be super uncomfortable to face him, be in the batter's box well, against ask him. Aaron Judge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but one thing that that's kind of changed in the last two months. If you, if you kind of split his, if you kind of split his uh, season in half, <clears throat> excuse me, um, he was top, literally the best pitcher in baseball at avoiding hard contact, and now that's spiked up. Okay. Uh, the barrel rate sp- spiked up, and so I think that's the biggest thing is he's finding a way. But the thing that made him elite early has kind of gone away too. Joe, do you look at that and, I mean, it's a long season. He's a young guy figuring out he hasn't pitched this much before in a season. Um, you take that as a maybe an encouraging sign long-term that he is able to win games for you or keep you in games in different ways and it's not just stuff, stuff, stuff start to start? Yeah, I'm like Chris. I'd love to see his stuff all season long, but he's a human being, and uh, we've talked about this workload a lot. And I think it's real. I don't think you can hide it, and I don't think because he's a six foot six big donkey that he's a big, strong, tough guy that he's not going to fatigue. He's a human being, and he's hitting a workload that place he's never been. So I think it's logical that we're going to see this, and we're starting to. And some of the things Chris described right there, like, that uh, he's a guy for me. I mean, I don't think he's a guy that spots it up all the time i mean we've seen him miss on the other side of the plate we've seen him miss location a lot the stuff is just so electric that he's always gotten away with it and we've got a swing and miss or soft contact but yeah when that changes i i think it's because a he's not as sharp but i wouldn't even say not as sharp i would say the stuff is not that electric stuff when i say electric you know that extra gear where you throw a fastball 93 right down the middle and guys are swinging and missing they're just not getting to it and maybe that's not happening now because it doesn't have that, quote, extra gear, whether that's spin, extension, whatever it might be, that his body could be fatiguing a bit. Who knows? Uh, the good thing is that he feels great, and they say that he's physically is great, so they keep throwing him out there. The better part is you get through this, and maybe maybe this is that, that second wind he'll get. Uh, pretty tough to imagine a second wind when you're hitting, hitting a workload spot where you've never been. That's what's discouraging or, or, or concerning. But, yeah, what he did with without his best stuff, my gosh, that is beyond impressive. What you alluded to there, Joe, about throwing a fastball in the zone 93 and getting swing and miss, that's one of the biggest things that stood out. And it's always something that I check when I'm seeing what's going on with pitchers is swing and miss in the zone. Do you need to throw a pitch out of the zone to get swing and miss? And that has dropped a lot in the last month or two. So, to me, that's an indicator of stuff. Um, but to me... I still where I still land with Manoa, and I don't think this is necessarily talked about with him, and maybe it has come up, and I just haven't seen it in conversation about him. The fact that he's doing all this without his best stuff, the makeup, the the size, like the body, the arm, like everything about him, I would be trying to lock this guy up. Like Vladdy and Bo, we kind of know why there's reasons why they probably won't. Um, with Manoa, I would try to be locking up this guy's pre-RB years, our beers, like everything, maybe even a year of post-free agency. Like I would be trying to sign him to a five or six-year deal right now or at least 
in the offseason. To me, everything about this and he, seeing him navigate without his best stuff, to me, this is this is a guy who can be good for the next six years. Plus, we figured out uh, how to get that extra juice out of him late in a start. You just have, <laughs> you know, he looks like he's he's losing his command a little bit late into a start. You just have Garrett Cole talk some smack and then five consecutive <laughs> outs, including two swinging strikeouts uh, to end his start. Joe, I, I don't know that we have the necessary stat cast data, but I have to imagine if Garrett Cole came at Alec Minot and crossed that Audi sign that uh, we, we would have had some pretty interesting stuff to break down. Joe, uh, lots more interesting stuff to break down with you on Blue Jays Central later tonight. Thanks so much for taking the time. All right, guys. Enjoy the series. Joe Siddle of Sportsnet on Blue Jays Central for the series. You can check him out there on the TV broadcast. Maybe even a little bit more of them if this rain keeps going. Chris Black. Thanks for taking the time, man. I know you got to get to uh, get to producing, get some backup content for the weather. No, I'm just going to put Joe on. I'm just going to let Joe and Jamie just no rain delay, no separate game. I'm just going to tell them Joe wanted camera time. I'm just going to let them take it. It'll be like a podcast, Blue Jay Central podcast edition tonight. There you go. Just play back this segment, but put some graphs over it i don't know i don't know what you do i I'll just put i'll just put myself on that that'll go over really well yes down there i think that's great uh chris black producer at sports at, at down to black on twitter where you can see a little bit more of his vlad thread there if you want to go and put some video with the numbers and with joe's insight as well um we're gonna take a break when we come back on the other side we're gonna take a look at what's going on in boston with chris catillo of MassLive.com. that's next on jay's talk plus on sports at 590 the fan the best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Fun little chat with Joe. Not even a little chat. That was pretty long. Uh, with Joe Siddle and Chris Black about some of the Jays' struggles with runners in scoring position, uh, particularly with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at the plate. Will he get an opportunity to redeem himself tonight? Maybe. But it probably won't be at 7.05. Our reports coming in from Boston are that the tarp is down on the field and it's looking like Almost certainly a delayed start tonight. Uh, the the scheduled start time is 7.05. If you are making plans around the game, I don't know that uh, you should plan on a 7.05 start or have a backup game on or something like that. You'll be all right. Watch uh, NXT on Sportsnet 360 in the meantime. I was at Monday Night Raw last night. Uh, it was a fun one. Uh, shout out to Emily Agard who had to do a live read in front of the Scotiabank Arena crowd and just killed it. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I went with J.D. Bunkus and a couple other people from around the building here. It's a fun one. Got to fire up my Rogers Ignite and uh, see how it looked on TV, see if I got any camera time. And, yes, I know I look like Kevin Owens. You guys can stop tweeting me about it. Um, so we peel back the curtain a little bit. Sometimes I – we pre-tape with a guest because it fits their schedule a little better. And then I just don't mention it and it just kind of sounds live. Uh, 
we talked to Chris Cotillo earlier today, and I'm just letting you know because it would be very weird for me to do this interview and not ask about the weather um, and if the game is going to get delayed. So this is our conversation with Chris Cotillo of MassLive.com earlier. Great chat about what's going on with the Red Sox, the kind of weird state of the franchise. And, of course, I asked him if the things keep going poorly. Could the Jays maybe poach a Raphael Devers down the line? Uh, this is our chat with Chris Cotillo from earlier today. Joined now by Chris Cotillo of MassLive.com. Chris, I have to ask you the most pressing question around Boston right now. Uh, August 29th, MGM Music Hall at Fenway opens. Are you going to get to go to that James Taylor show that opens the venue? <laughs> yeah, no, as a, uh, I'm not. As a uh, UNC alum, you know, Carolina, in my mind, is an absolute classic, so I kind of wish I was, but uh, no, I am not going to be there. Unbelievable. Uh, tough. <laughs> sorry, but sorry to hear that uh, tough break. Um, man, I, I imagine you're not going to be there because you're on the Red Sox beat full time. Uh, what is the pulse of that Red Sox beat right now? Because it has felt from afar like a very chaotic and up and down couple years. Yeah, for sure. And I think just an up and down year. You know, if you uh, just look at what 2022 has been, you know, they started out horribly 10 and 19 you know people were kind of jumping ship early um and then they were really one of the best teams in baseball for all of june they were 20 and 6 come back in july and just had an absolutely miserable month of july in august here they've just been kind of spinning their wheels and at this point it's hard to think with 40 games left as they're six you know six games out that uh you know they have a chance so um you know, we, we've seen they've had a lot of trouble against good teams all year. The Jays, the Rays, uh, and the Chief among them. And, you know, that's a tough home stand. They've played both of those teams now at Fenway this week. And, you know, they've also been super injured. You know, I don't know where they stack up to, you know, the, some of the other teams in the league. But if you look at, you know, who's been on the injured list, they missed Kike Hernandez for two months. Nathan Evaldi's about to go on the injured list for the second time after missing a month earlier. Michael Walker was out for a long time. Raphael Devers was hurt for a while. Uh, Trevor Story's now been out for more than a month. And, you know, key bullpen guys are closer. Tanner Houck is out right now. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, they no one wants to make that injury excuse. But uh, it's hard for any team to withstand, you know, kind of everything that they've had to deal with. So it's been very up and down. You know, I think they are, um, you know, in this weird purgatory where they're within shouting distance of a playoff spot. And they have been for some time. Um, and obviously after June, you know, they were in, in wild card position, but also you look at them now and they're in fifth place in the American league East, you know, they have not played well at all against the AL East throughout, throughout the season. They haven't played well against good teams. And, um, it's just kind of in the story of the season. So now in this last six weeks or so they're in, um, you know, kind of play out the string mode, which is not, you know, what anybody expected after they, uh, were within two wins of reaching the world series a year ago. So you mentioned a lot of the injuries, and I think you're right. Like, they've, they've really piled up and show me the team that can lose James Paxton and Chris Sale and a closer and your, your big shortstop signing in Trevor or your big second base signing in Trevor Story. Um, the Chris Sale one was unfortunate timing, obviously, uh, right after the trade deadline. But some of these other ones were known things. And I'm curious as your thought with the benefit of hindsight now, did that 20-6 and six stretch in June where they got a little closer to the playoff picture, as close as they'd get this year, um, do you think that that maybe kept them from selling as much as they should have? Yeah, and you know, and they also, they also really didn't buy, I think, as much as they should early. You know, they, they went, you know, there's a stretch right after, 
June where they faced the uh, Rays and the Yankees in a seven-game homestand, and then we went on the road for a seven-game homestand, four in Tampa, four in St. Pete, and then four in New York. And, like, a lot of people around the team were thinking, you know, we need reinforcements now. You know, the injury bug had started piling up then. Hernandez was already out, and Whitlock, who was, you know, their best pitcher, and Evaldi and a bunch of these people were already out. And it just seemed like, you know, go get reinforcements now. You know, go get reinforcements before the all, before July starts, before the All-Star break. Don't wait until the trade deadline when it might be too late because, you know, Tampa and New York, teams they struggled against, and obviously the Yankees were, you know, beating everybody at that point. They hadn't hit their, uh, their struggles like they have quite yet. Um, and they didn't do anything. You know, there was a few guys that they were thinking of trying to go get. Carlos Santana was one of them. They decided not to go get anybody, and then, you know, they went four and ten in that stretch before the All Star break. The day before the All Star break, Chris Sale, uh, the you know, I guess the, the the second of three injuries this year, gets hit with a comebacker at Yankee Stadium, uh, which really kind of just took the life out of the team. They come out of the uh, All Star break stumbling. You know, people in Toronto saw that they were first hand with that. You know, mm-hmm. beat down on that Friday night, uh, twenty eight to five. Luckily, I was in Cooperstown for David Ortiz that night, so I didn't have to <laughs> see that in person, but. Um, you know, like they, they just, uh, I think that the window was early July and they let that pass. And then by the time they get to the trade deadline, it was uh, an impossible spot to be in. Um, you know, obviously they traded Christian Vasquez, their starting catcher, but they, uh, also, you know, added to the big league team. They got Reese McGuire, who's been, uh, actually pretty good for them offensively as a catcher, which was kind of been a surprise. Uh, and then obviously Eric Cosmer and Tommy Pham were the two bigger additions. So, um, they tried to kind of thread that needle and be both buyers and sellers at the trade deadline. I think that's always easier said than done to do it. You know, trading Vasquez really irritated a lot of the veterans in the clubhouse, including Xander Bogart. I think a lot of people were confused about the trajectory or the plan for the team. And um, it's just been, you know, for the last, other than June, it's just been an unpleasant year. I think that's really the best way to put it. I mean, April was um, very disappointing. You know, May was just kind of, spinning their wheels. June was awesome. And then July and really August have been, you know, pretty miserable for this group. And um, after kind of a, an unexpected run toward contention last year, it's um, kind of back to square one for this organization. I think in a lot of ways. I, and you mentioned, you know, Xander Bogart's being rubbed the wrong way by the Christian Vasquez trade. And I wonder too, if, and I'm sure he wouldn't speak on this publicly, but it, with guys like him, even a Raphael Devers, um, if there's a little bit of, questioning what is the vision here because obviously they trade away Mookie Betts and we hear that that's because they're trying to avoid the competitive balance tax. Now they're spending deep for a not very good team. Xander Bogarts can of course uh, try free agency this summer or this winter if he wants. Raphael Devers not that far off and now a good clubhouse guy like Christian Vasquez isn't in the mix. Um, how much pressure is this front office going to be feeling on the Xander Bogarts front and to a lesser extent Raphael Devers this next little bit? Oh, it's a it's you know a lot of pressure I think for both for both of those guys you know especially Devers I think you know people are are kind of starting to be resigned to the fact that Bogarts might leave he can opt out after the season and it just seems like the writing is on the wall there with Devers though he's like a generational talent and you know a guy that they think that they want to build around for a while and um, you know I think that they're going to try to do that I think that just the optics of losing you mentioned Mookie the optics of losing Mookie Betts as well as you know, Devers and Bogarts in a course of three or four years, I just don't think that they can do that. I just don't think that they can let, you know, three homegrown stars, you know, walk away like that for, for nothing in free agency. Um, and so I, I just, I, I find it hard to believe that they actually, 
you know, will let that happen. But so far, they haven't really made a lot of progress on locking up either of those guys. And as Xander Bogart did say publicly, he did say, you know, the quiet part out loud almost, where he was uh, saying after the trade deadline, you know, I am questioning the direction of this organization. I am wondering what's happening here. You know, I, I don't understand, you know, why we traded somebody like Christian Vasquez when we're only a few games out. And uh, he said uh, during that interview, I, I asked him the question, do you think they're waving the white flag on this team? And he said, uh, I don't want to go that far, but it's definitely trending in that direction. And then someone asked him, you know, how does this affect your situation coming up in free agency in a year? And he said, I don't want to say anything that I'll regret later in the heat of the moment. I mean, I just thought that was all pretty interesting stuff. And, um, you know, they haven't treated him particularly well. They lowballed him in spring training. They didn't make him an offer, you know, worth what he is, is worth. His numbers are down this year. Um, you know, still among the best for American League shortstops. He's obviously getting older, but he's been, you know, the perfect, perfect uh, represent- representative for the organization. There's always that talk about, you know, there's guys who can't play in Boston, right? We've seen it time and time again, whether it be Carl Crawford or Pablo Sandoval or whoever, you know, name your guy. And you find somebody like Bogart, you find somebody like Devin, you should probably, you know, pay them handsomely for their ability to do so. Yeah, it's it's also hilarious to put in context of like, yeah, yeah, Bogarts is having a bit of a down year. His 10th season, he's hitting 300 and has been worth right. over four wins. It's like, yeah, a down season for him uh, is different. So let's, let's play out the scenario where, Mookie Betts walks, Xander Bogarts walks. You said you can't lose three homegrown guys like that. Uh, I know the preference would be sign Raphael Devers to an extension, but I have to at least do the like Toronto Raptors checking in on Kevin Durant thing here. Is there like a mm-hmm. tiny possibility the Red Sox would try to recoup assets for Raphael Devers if those talks don't go well? I think there's a small chance. I don't think I'd ever you know rule out anything with Bloom, right? Like you, you, you saw him trade Mookie a couple years ago. If he can do that. Um, you know, basically uh, a year and a half removed from a World Series title in which that guy won the MVP, anything's possible. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, the, the preference is going to be to sign Devers. And I think Devers, at least from what I've gathered, Devers is going to be probably an easier extension candidate than Mookie was. I think Mookie really set a very high bar for himself and was going to be comfortable going to free agency. I think, you know, push comes to shove. Devers, like Bogart did a few years ago, not that they're, you know, Bogart did take a significant hometown discount. I'm not saying that Denver's is going to do the same thing, but um, you know, just trying to uh, at least be a little bit more reasonable in making a deal. And I never fault anybody for going for the full, you know, going for as much money as you can because you know these guys really only get one shot at that usually, and you know they deserve it, especially the years and the numbers they put up over time. So um, I just. Uh, I find it hard to believe that they're going to let Devers walk. I really think they'll get a deal done there. Bogart, though, it does feel like this is the last of him in a Red Sox uniform. And it's unfortunate it ends this way because, like I said, he's been a perfect citizen for really 10 years. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, I'm uh, that that's certainly the way that you would want it to go from, from the Boston side, I'm sure. Uh, but I, I had to ask. I had to do the Devers poach question. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned the white flag and – you know, one of the telltale signs of a white flag down the stretch is guys going on the IL when maybe they don't completely need to or, you know, things like that. Just just taking everything a little cautious, shifting some playing time to newer, younger guys. Um, Nate Evaldi to the IL right now. Maybe that's not uh, fully that kind of move, but Red Sox six games out right now. At what, how big does that number have to get before they're, you know, in full white flag mode? I, you know, I, I don't think they're there quite yet. Um, you know, the interesting thing is there's a lot of young players, there's a lot of good young players that this organization is looking forward to seeing. 
you know, we've seen some of that this year. Brian Bayo, one of the top pitching prospects in baseball, has come up. Uh, he's, you know, on the injured list right now. But Cutter Crawford, Josh Winkowski, who will be pitching tonight, a few of these guys, you know, the Red Sox has kind of seen what they have. Um, Jeter Downs, another one, very big struggles in the majors. But, um, and the, the biggest one of all, I think, is going to be uh, Tristan Costa's first base prospect, who has been, you know, really among the best prospects in baseball now for four years. He was a first-round pick. He's really kind of checked every box. He's in the top 20 or 30 prospects in the league, according to most rankings. And um, the expectation is that he could be up, you know, as soon as this week for his major league debut. Um, people are excited about that. You know, we talked about keeping the Red Sox relevant in September. You know, having him come up will be one of those things that people are going to tune in to see. I think they're probably going to do that at some point. I'd be shocked if he wasn't called up by the end of the season. Um, so that's, that's one thing that's not, you know, necessarily – waving the white flag, but you're just getting kind of a, a sense of what you have in the future. You know, I think we'll see a few of those guys, whether it be, you know, Bayo maybe getting some more run in the majors or, you know, Crawford really, I think, is earned a rotation spot now for next year, so we'll see a lot of them. You know, we've seen a lot of Winkowski and Will again tonight. Um, and, recently, you know, there's, there's just tryouts at other spots, too. You know, old friend for, for you guys, Reese McGuire, has, yeah. um, you know, been kind of hitting 400, I think, since he was – as of the weekend, he was hitting 400 since he came over, and you know they were playing him over uh, Kevin Plawecki behind the plate, uh, and you know maybe Reese McGuire is a guy that's on the roster next year. Christian Arroyo is a guy that's had a really really good stretch here since coming back from the injury list in late July. You know he's probably you know a guy that you want to get a look at. You want to see what you have. You know I think if the jury's not if the jury somehow is still out on what you have from Bobby Dahlbeck, I mean there's some of those guys for sure. Um, and, you know, it's also, I think, the last of, of kind of that, you know, old guard of Red Sox who have been here for a few years, who we've, you know, seen for a while, whether that be, you know, Bogarts or Nate Evaldi, uh and then J.D. Martinez. I mean, there's a lot of guys who are pending free agents, T.K. Hernandez. I mean, there's, there's a, a lot of really well-known players who are set for free agency. So that's obviously an interesting storyline as well. You mentioned Josh Winkowski. And, yeah, I'll, say, I'll just say on Reese McGuire, I'm going to take the under on the 400 batting average the rest of the way. Uh, yeah. I don't know yeah. that there's a ton of hit tool there, but but hope it works out for him. Um, another former Blue Jay and Josh Winkowski uh, feels like he was drafted like a decade ago now. Uh, he was part of that Steven Matz trade for the Jays the other year and finds his way to Boston. Um, he's still just 24. The numbers, the surface level numbers haven't been kind to him. The stat cast level numbers really haven't been kind to him. Um, what are we looking for from Winkowski the rest of the season? Like, like what, is the, what is the thing that would give you confidence that maybe this can be more than, you know, a lower leverage bullpen arm down the line? Yeah, I mean, he's a guy that really came up and against bad competition in his first four or five starts was pretty impressive. You know, he went out and he had like a three ERA through like five starts and, you know, kept them during a time when, um, you know, they had Whitlock in the rotation back then when he was out of the mix, when Evaldi was hurt, when a few of these different guys were, were down, when Kelsey was one of the guys that, you know, kept them afloat along with Cutter Crawford. And, you know, they had, uh, Connor Seabold was bad, but they had him up for a little while as well. Um, so when Kelsey was good then, and then since July 7th, he has a 6.75 ERA. He imploded against a, a really bad Pittsburgh team the other day. Um, you know, it's just kind of one of those case studies. Like in today's game, can you have a guy who does not get swing and miss? You know, he's a guy who is really reliant on the uh, soft contact and turning weak contact into outs. And it's like, is that something that, you know, works in today's game? Uh, they're trying to figure that out. The, the, so far in the last you know, month plus, it hasn't. 
Um, but, you know, I think they think he's a, he's a pretty, you know, uh, hard worker, smart guy. Um, he's one of five guys they got in that Andrew Benatendi trade. Uh, I think that they're going to see what they have in him. Obviously, you know, you never want to get let a young pitcher go. You know, I was actually telling uh, just, you know, we talked about things in the press box. I had him as a guy that looked to trade at the trade deadline or looked to like, you know, major league ready pitchers had a little bit of success. You know, why not try to flip them while his, his numbers look good? They didn't do that. And, you know, now they're going to have to see you know, what they have over the course of some years. But, um, you know, the Red Sox do have a bunch of arms that are pretty interesting in the upper levels. You know, Bayo, like I said, Crawford, like I said, um, you know, there's some other guys that might be coming up too. So, um, if he turns into a reliever, then, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world. Um, and, you know, maybe a team uh, thinks he's a good change of scenery candidate. Uh, but, you know, they've, they've seen a lot of him so far. Um, you know, tonight he gets to start over Rich Hill just because I think they think he's a better matchup against all the righties, which makes some sense. Um, and uh, we'll see. It's a, it's a tough assignment for him, obviously. I know that it's not uh, confirmed yet, but is your read on it that the rest of the series would then go crawford Walker? I think so. Uh, maybe that um, – I don't really see them giving Rich Hill an outing um, during the series, just like I said with the lineup. But it uh, could be wrong. They have not announced it yet. Well, I uh, I look forward to hopefully Rich Hill starting because I would love another high offense game. Although the, the Jays have been, like, weirdly bad against left-handed pitching. So, uh, who knows? Maybe that's a get-right game. Maybe that's a, a good Rich Hill game. <laughs> the Jays' offense has been a little tough to figure out series to series of – you know, hey, you're going to light up the ace and then do really poorly against the junk baller with a 550 ERA. Uh, so who knows? Last one for you before I let you go, Chris. Uh, Jaron Duran, wh- where are you at on him? He's almost 26 now. Kind of the prospect shine is is off a little bit now with two partial seasons, still struggling at the plate. Um, what is his outlook looking like right now? Yeah, he's not going to play much for the rest of the season. Kike Hernandez is back as yeah. the main center fielder, you know, and I think that, you know, as you said, the shine is off um, offensively. He, um, you know, we came up and was pretty good this year to start. Um, and then it kind of, you know, came down to a lot of strikeouts. You know, his, his biggest calling card is speed, but when you don't get on base, there's not a lot of times you can show that off. And then just the defensive lapses over and over and over and over again, I think we're really telling. Um, you know, like you said, 26 years old, it's just not, there's not like this is a guy that you can wait on for a while. Um, they don't have a lot of outfield depth going forward, so I think he probably has somewhat of a leash based on that. But, um, you know, it's been just a, generally a disappointment uh, for the last, you know, two years. And I think he's played basically half a season now, and it's been, um, you know, not what people expected. He came up with a lot of hype last year and at the All-Star break. So he's not a guy I, I think you can count on you know, to be a foundational piece. I wouldn't be shocked if they look to try to trade him in the offseason, see if there's any value there of a team that thinks that they can unlock something. Um, but, yeah, he he, uh, he he did, you know, like he, he can't say there was a lack of opportunity there because PK was out for two months and he, you know, had that starting center field role and on both sides of the ball he really wasn't able to produce. Uh, Chris, may I ask you one personal question, professional question before sure. I let you go? Uh, okay, so it's been about, a decade of you being in the sports industry now. And I know, you know, back in late 2013, like I was running in the the baseball blog circles and stuff, right. As you were kind of starting out, um, you know, looking back now, and I know you had that, you know, you've used your platform and the success you've had uh, to raise money for charities and to now carve out a, a role as one of the, the best beat writers going. Um, man, I, I guess just as, as we approach, kind of the end of another year. How, how do you feel about 
that journey for you and now being, you know, full-time locked into Red Sox were your childhood team, right? This has got to be a pretty cool way for your career to have developed. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they, it's different, you know, when you're around it every day, you're obviously not, you know, rooting for wins and losses like I once was, which is, you know, interesting. It just comes with the job and being in the clubhouse and, you know, not just forcing the objectivity, but I think it just comes with time. Um, you know, like I, I always say, if you, if you ask me what I wanted to do at, you know, five, six years old, I'm, I'm doing it on a daily basis, you know, like getting to call. Fenway, my office every day is amazing. Um, you know, I, I still kind of feel like it's a special place every time I walk in, even if it is, you know, 80 times a year. Um, and yeah, I look back and it's been, it's been, uh, you know, crazy to say that, you know, that's almost a decade now, I guess 2013 was almost 10 years ago. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's been quite the ride, obviously. You know, I've worn different hats. The SB Nation years were awesome. And that side has been great to me the last four. So, um, yeah, it's always, it's from, uh, from tweeting, being, I always say the most annoying anonymous Twitter account in 2013 trade deadline to, uh, you know, start actually having people starting to pay attention and read what I write for some reason. It's been uh, it's been really cool to have it all happen. So ride the wave for as long as possible. It's been cool to watch as well, man. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time out. Hope the series uh, treats you well, but in the way of like, oh, the negative drama is something nice to, to write about. Um, Chris Cotillo, thanks so much, man. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. That was Chris Cotillo of MassLive.com. Uh, not the rosiest of times around the Red Sox. Not the sunniest of days around the Red Sox and the Jays. Still no confirmation on a pushback start time or anything like that. But everyone down there at Fenway seems to think that's coming. Uh, we will keep you apprised of that. We will take a look at the lineups and the pitching matchup later in the show. But when we come back, King of Stuff Plus, Enosaurus of The Athletic, gives us the latest on Ross Stripling Top 10 most improved pitcher this year? That's next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stock Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Joined now by a man whose statistical work has become so huge that not only is there a West Coast double IPA called Stuff Plus, it's also, I'm going to say, because that's from Full Tilt Brewing in Baltimore. This man single-handedly turned around the Orioles franchise. It's Eno Saras of The Athletic. Eno, how are you, man? <laughs> I had nothing to do with that, but I am, I am amazed that they put my stat on a beer can. That is, uh, that is not something I expected. The, the, the first one was Sticky Stuff, which had to do with me breaking the, um, the pine tar on the fingers story. And they had a quote from my story, and I thought, that was crazy enough. There's a quote from my story on there. This time, they had to take a quote from one of my stories, and the quote is, I didn't think we'd end up here, which I think sums things up perfectly. Ha! Ah, that's uh, you could have a. I didn't think we end up beer 
or something like that. There's <laughs> lots you can do with this. Um, and then maybe you get like a like a 2.5 or 3% like micro, and that can be the command plus one because you're not going to worry about lo- losing your uh, losing your command. We, we got lots of ideas here, man. We can, we can figure this out. You'll have a whole like six-pack uh, taster thing by next season. <laughs> all the plus stats so yeah exactly um i i gotta ask you before we get into some more of the the plus stats here um news comes down today that Artie moreno is looking to sell the los angeles angels um wh- what's your quick take on that because they've been a pretty i i want to say frustrating franchise for the more hardcore baseball fans over the years yeah, I think Artie Moreno is a bottom-tier owner in that uh, he does invest in the Major League product, and uh, so that part is okay. And, and you know, maybe you as a GM would rather have an owner that you know, that will give you some money to spend. So he's obviously spent some money. On the other hand, he gets involved in a lot of the moves. Uh, he's personally involved in signing uh, some of the worst contracts they've signed. And um, even when he tried to uh, allow people uh, a little autonomy near the end of his reign, uh, he did it in kind of a ham-fisted way, and he never invested in the infrastructure that is actually super important to a team, player development, prospects, coaching, scouting, all the type of stuff that isn't sexy, you know, doesn't um, you know, get you the back page. Maybe he's battling for the back page like the Mets <laughs> and the Yankees do in New York, but... Whatever it is, the 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 infrastructure in Anaheim is the maybe the worst in baseball. They they, you know, w- one way you can look at it is when there was a shutdown for COVID, uh, the Angels were one of like three teams that just let all their coaches go and stopped <laughs> paying all their minor leaguers, and they have never really recovered since. Yeah, I would say I would argue that the Rockies have a worst infrastructure, but that would suggest they have an infrastructure. So I, I will give it to the Angels <laughs> then. Um, any thought what that does to the Shohei Otani talks? Like the Otani stuff, it kind of always felt like everyone was just kind of trying to do the NBA wish casting thing where he'd get traded because the Angels were such a such a mess and it would get him to a better, more high-profile spot. Um, do you think this increases the chances of him signing kind of a mega extension there? Because obviously if you're going to buy that team, Shohei's a, a huge, huge part of that. I think we just had a dry run for this in Washington yeah. with Juan Soto because you had a team with maybe the other uh, worst infrastructure. <laughs> I, would, I would probably put the Rockies, the Angels, and the Nationals as having the, the worst player development infrastructures in baseball. Um, although I don't know if that's uh, completely fair in uh, Colorado. They're, they just don't have R&D. Like their, right. their entire R&D department has quit like three times over in the last three years. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, there was a headline like a, a month or so ago of like, yeah, they, they hired an, a head of analytics. It's like in 2022. That's okay. Good, yeah, good right. first step. <laughs> they also, uh, they got the, yeah. the Bill James annual. Also from 1987 yeah. or something like that. They're, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're catching up. They're, for, they're finally getting to reading. Yeah. You know, I think they're okay at scouting. But I think, uh, and maybe the, the Nationals are okay at scouting, but uh, which might actually put the Angels last because I don't know how good they are at scouting. But um, 
in Washington, what happened was you had owners coming, you have new owners coming in at some point. Um, and the question is, would you think that this franchise is worth more with a player that's probably headed to the Hall of Fame uh, with your cap on uh, under contract? Or is it going to be worth more with a small payroll? And I, unfortunately, I think the Washington Nationals kind of answered that because, you know, the trade uh, that they ended up doing, I'm, I'm sure there'll be a, a good player or two in there. Um, but it isn't a trade that they had to make. It wasn't a um, a drop dead trade of of you know one of the best prospects in baseball. You know I don't I don't see CJ Abrams that way. So um, you know I think uh, what they said was ownership would rather have a cheap team uh, than a good team when they take over. So I, I think that's probably going to be the case in Anaheim as well. I don't love that. I uh, well I love it as someone who would love to see the team that they do a baseball like, show about acquire well, Shohei Otani. Yeah, that part <laughs> love would to be see cool. the Blue Jays acquire. Mike Trout. <laughs> yeah, th- those uh, those elements would be great. But yeah, if there's anything I love more than the idea of buying a baseball team with Shohei Otani and Mike Trout on it, it's buying a baseball team with a, a lean balance sheet for the future. It's a little <laughs> frustrating. Um, I, I actually, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought up infrastructure because I, I actually wanted, I know it was David O'Brien's piece at the athletic, but he wrote recently about some of the stuff the Braves have been doing to like we talk about player development and and so often I think it gets thought of or it gets siloed as a minor league thing and not something that's continuous and always ongoing at the major league level too. Um, What can we learn from teams like the Braves in terms of, Hey, you have a guy up here, you need him for this role, but there's no reason you can't keep developing him in the interim. Yeah. uh, I think of a couple of things. I also think of, in, in, in San Francisco out here, I'm based in the Bay Area, um, they have the, entire, the, the entirely same setup that they have for their players in the major leagues they have in AAA and AA. So when they call up a guy from AAA, you know, their game day prep, their, the way that they use the machines, uh, they turn the machines up to like 105. <laughs> if they're going to face Kevin Gossman tonight, they want to see Kevin Gossman at 102. So when they get in the game, Kevin Gossman seems easier, you know? Right. Um, and that's the kind of philosophy they have. They call it training dirty. And they do that in AA and AAA. So all their players, when they come up to the big leagues, are like, oh, yeah. I've done this. This is easy. I know, I know what we're doing here, um, and they're used to it. So that's part of what you're talking about. I think of the, the story you were thinking of, I think probably is Dave O'Brien writing about how Robbie Grossman, yeah. a major league veteran, you know, comes over from the Tigers, and they say, hey, you know, uh, and literally the hitting coach, Kevin Seitzer, said, like, hey, you know, our nerds have uh, these machines that, like, uh, basically uh, broke you down into some sticks. And I've, I've done that where I've, I've gone and gotten the biomechanical assessment and they've broken me down into sticks and I've seen my body in stick, <laughs> in stick form. Um, and he said they, they, they looked at your, at your sticks uh, and they think that a couple of these sticks should be moving in different ways. Now, he was kind of laughing about it, but then he said, and then I added from my experience some things that could loosen up his upper body. So that's good player development. That you have, you can even joke about it. You can even joke about it with each other. You can call each other nerds. I call myself a nerd. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's it's okay if you if the, you're listening to them. If you call them nerds and you don't listen to them, that's not okay. But if you call them nerds and then you take what they do and and put it into what you already have, then you have a good system. And you know, I think that they actually have uh, in Atlanta a secret um, ace in player development, Mike Fast who used to work uh, at yeah. Baseball Prospectus and then at the Houston Astros. 
Uh, he has rebuilt entire R&D departments. Uh, he has been at the top of R&D departments. Um, I think he should be the next uh, GM of uh, the Angels, and I, I think he would do a really good job. So uh, that's not a name that I've heard a lot in terms of you know the next next generation GMs, but I think he should be on that list. So you're saying he should be on the fast track? <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> I had to. Uh, all right, uh, let's let's. And you're not even a dad yet, are you? <laughs> no, I'm not. That's it's just really bad. Um, it's been it's been a long one, man. Um, okay, so I want to talk about you know I guess it's a player development story as well, but I want to switch to the pitching side. And you and I have spoke about Ross Stripling a couple times this year. Your latest at the Athletic. Um, you look at some of the biggest gainers year over year in your stuff plus metric. Ross Stripling is top 10 there in terms of who who has increased their stuff the most. Um, I I guess before we get into the specifics, are you a little surprised when you see a guy who's 32 years old, almost 33, and has kind of been around for seven years, find a new gear like this? I think to some extent it was a little bit of a step back from last year, but also that's the siren song of, you know, really great player development is, um, you know, change, change your pitch mix, change your life. As I say, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think in that same piece, I looked at how people, uh, change, you know, and there were, I think about half of the pitchers that gained the most stuff, uh, gained actual pitching velocity. And so that's when you think, Oh, Ross Stripling 37, not going to gain velocity. And that's pretty much aging curves say, even if you do the whole driveline thing, you very rarely gain velocity mid career. Um, but 22 out of the 25 players that increased their stuff changed their pitch mix. So basically, everybody that that improved changed their pitch mix. So to some extent, when you look at Ross Stripling, it's not as much about, you know, oh, yeah, I think he did do something to his changeup. It's a little bit different. Um, and, you know, I do. I, he did add some ride to his fastball, and that's good. Uh, but mostly it's because he is a pretty much an entirely new ch- picks mix this year. And I think that's uh, been a really key, the heart of, of his improvement this year. So in terms of, well, I, I definitely, and we've, you know, Ross Stripling's talked about that a little bit on the At The Letters podcast um, with Hazel May here on, on the Blue Jays broadcasts. And it's no secret that part of that has been leaning on the change up a little bit more. Um, you know, the slider is now his number one pitch against righties. And then that change up is a, is a huge weapon against lefties. I, I know by your stuff plus metric, it's like a top 50 pitch in all of baseball. Do you think that that change up is something he could throw a little bit more to righties or would you still be mostly using that as a, an opposite handed hitter weapon? Part of what makes him so good is dancing around. And I think, uh, you know, dancing around and keeping the batter on his back feet because he has so many different pitches, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's part of what's going on. So, you know, there is some danger if he throws it too much, people just start sitting change up. The stuff metric, though, says, no, it's just a really good pitch and you could throw it more. The only thing that I would say um, that, uh, that makes it a little bit different um, is that uh, – he's been throwing the sinker more to right-handers. Mm-hmm. And um, the changeup, if you define it off the sinker, is probably not going to look as good. So if the hitter starts, if the right-handed hitter starts looking for sinker and change, which now 
is about a quarter of the pitches the right-hander will see. And if maybe he can figure out some counts where he's more likely to see it, so he gets it up to 30 or 40%, now he can sit, sink, or change. And if he doesn't get the sinker, he can probably still make contact with the changeup. Right. And, um, and, and so, therefore, you know, given the new sinker usage, which is new for, for Stripling this year, um, I think the, the slider is still his best uh, out pitch against, against righties, especially since he's kind of using the sinker as an out pitch. What he's right. doing is throwing it low and in in two strike counts when they're looking for a slider away. Gotcha. Um, that makes sense. Um, so I have a, a general change up question. For you and Codify Baseball tweeted this out initially um, that Ross Stripling has the uh, highest release point on his changeup in baseball, and I got curious about it, so I went digging around in um, you know some of the Statcast stuff, some of the Stuff Plus stuff, and if you look at the guys with the highest release point on their changeup. They are the guys that throw a lot of changeups and throw them really effectively. Wells, Flexen, Waka, Stripling. Um, does that make sense to you? Is this something we should be looking at a little bit more as guys develop their changeup, that kind of high release point on it? That is so interesting, and I, I kind of missed that. Uh, congratulations. That's a, that's a good one. I might have to, <laughs> I might have to write about that one. <laughs> Back to your fangrass days there. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, think, uh, I think what's going on there, release point is a really important uh, feature in Stuff Plus. And I think people see a certain release point and they've been conditioned over their career as a hitter to associate that release point with movement. So some of the best pitchers that you see now that you can't really figure out, uh, Penn Murphy, Adam Simber, um, you know, you know, these these funky guys, Michael Givens, all these guys that Josh Hader, you know, a lot of these guys that have weird release points and weird movement that comes out of that. Um, and those guys that I just mentioned, a lot of them are side armors that can get more ride than expected out of their four-seamer because the hitter sees side arm and he says, oh, this is all going to fall away from me. Side armors, everything just falls. It just goes sideways and it falls. That's what a side armor does. So they're ready for that. And if, it, if they can get a little bit of ride on their fastball, that'll jump up at the hitter, even though it doesn't look like a lot of ride if you don't factor in release point. Once you factor in release point, they're like, oh, that's weird. That's, that's kind of jumping at me from a lower release point. So that's been a big thing in discovering how to find the good side armors has been like who can, who can kind of pitch up in the zone from, sidearm, from that sidearm angle, who can, who can have a little bit of ride on their, on their pitches. And I think that what you just discovered is kind of the opposite of that is you didn't normally think of guys who are over the top as having good changeups because they don't actually in raw movement have a lot of side-to-side movement. In fact, if you look at raw movement for strip lengths, it doesn't stand out. But he's so over the top that any side-to-side movement is really impressive and and surprises the hitter because they see that over-the-top release point. They think everything's going to be north-south. Everything's going to be up and down, and there's not going to be much wiggle here today. And then his changeup actually has some wiggle. So I, I, it's, uh, it's related to seam-shifted wake. It's related to the physics of how the pitch moves. It's related to a lot of that. But really, it's release point-based deception. Huh. So, yeah, we both got to dig in on this a little bit more. I got to uh, maybe next time I'm down at the park, I can try to ask Stripling about this too and see if that, that was a conscious change uh, or not. So in that same article, uh, you asked on Twitter for people to suggest a younger pitcher that they wanted you to blurb up. And of course, Blue Jays Twitter, always very voluminous, and they get you to do the Mitch White blurb, your man of the people. Um, Mitch White <laughs> is not a guy who throws a change up much at all, but he does get 
a lot of Ross Stripling comparisons. And not to overdo that, but I couldn't help but think when I read that blurb and when I just heard you say, you, you talk about, well, a lot of the biggest stuff gainers are guys who change their pitch mix. And then I look at Mitch White and it's like, well, his fastball is kind of his worst pitch. Is he a candidate, do you think, to change up that pitch mix and take a step forward next year by relying more on those two kind of plus secondary offerings? Yeah, you know, I, I you still have to establish, and, mm-hmm. and I get that. Uh, but one thing that makes me very hopeful for Mitch White is he has really good command of his slider, which means that he can actually throw that slider in pit, in pitch counts where he needs a strike. And that's going to be huge because he needs to, to hide his, his fastballs a little bit. They're not great. Um, and so if he can hide, if he can use the slider, he could just become a little bit more of a 50-50 guy, fastball slider, um, and be using the slider in counts where you know they expect fastball. That could be a, a benefit. Um, my model says his changeup is actually pretty good. Uh, so maybe you could you could up some change-ups in there. And then the biggest thing for me is between his two fastballs, neither of them rates well by stuff. But if if he can command one better than the other, then he should just throw that. You know, like if he just goes back to the sinker uh, because he can command it better, that's okay for this model, you know. Um, it may not make his change-up good, but uh, maybe he can go sinker, slider, curveball and and find success that way because basically the problem is he doesn't have great command his slider is his best pitch he needs to reconfigure that mix around the slider i think so another one one more name from from that piece and it just coincidental timing here that stripling white and uh cutter crawford all in there we're gonna see cutter crawford this week we think we don't have uh the jays and red sox haven't confirmed their starters for the entire series yet but we're assuming we're gonna see cutter crawford uh in boston at some point um what is what's cutter crawford improved on he's a guy toronto blue jays fans are, are probably familiar with because of the the divisional proximity and everything um but it does seem like he's kind of more quietly as far as red sox guys go because usually you can't go two feet without hearing about a Red Sox pitcher improving. Um, but Cutter Crawford uh, taking a step forward this year. Yeah, uh, he's a little different than Mitch White. I mean, none of his pitches rates as highly by stuff um, as Mitch White's slider, but he's got better command. And he's got better command of three or four pitches. Um, and his four seam and cutter are a legit one-two combo. Um, my model says the slider's good, but maybe it's too hard for him to throw a four seam slider, cutter, and curveball. There aren't a lot of people. I remember Shane Green used to try to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you try to think of, you know, I guess Max Scherzer does that. Uh, where oh, yeah, just be like balls. Max Scherzer. There you go, Cutter Crawford. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. It's like maybe it's not that easy. Maybe they start to blend together. Maybe it, it, it hurts his cutter. Uh, and since he's named after the cutter, uh, I guess he's going to have to stick with that. But um, I, I see enough promise here uh, that I see at least a three-pitch guy uh, maybe four, uh, if you can throw the slider, uh, curve and the cutter, um, and the shape on his four seam is good. Uh, good command of everything. I, I don't know if he's an ace. It's really hard to predict aces, um, because sometimes they come out of nowhere, but I think he's a starter. And that's, that was one question. If he's a starter or not, I see enough pitches. I see enough command. I think he's a starter. I think he's a pretty good one. Well, Jay's fans, if you see him and you're hoping for, 
reason for optimism and maybe that that Eno's optimism about Cutter Crawford is more long-term. Uh, we do know too that the last 400 pitchers or so are more predictive of your next start with stuff plus and, and pitching plus. And he has had three pretty rough ones uh, or two pretty rough ones in the last three. So uh, maybe working through it a little bit here. You know, sorry. I mean, he's also he was also uh, relieving a little bit earlier on. Yes. So there's a bit of a role change there. So yeah. you know that does hide that does cover up some of the numbers, but uh, I think he can make it. But yeah, you're right. Uh, if he becomes just a two pitch pitcher, then the Blue Jays got a chance. Yeah. If Baltimore can get nine over three and two thirds against you, and Kansas City can get five. Uh, I think you you have a, a puncher's chance there. Uh, Eno Saris of the of the athletic of uh, beer design at Full Tilt Brewing. Uh, check out the Stuff Plus West Coast Double IPA if you're in that area. Next time the Jays are there, they still have a million games against the Orioles, so maybe you will be. Uh, Eno, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. And don't drink it. Don't drink it through a beer stro- uh, through a hot dog straw. No, absolutely yeah, not. Yeah, I, I was trying to avoid that on the on the show today because I don't want to be sick. But yeah, please don't. No glizzy straw. Thanks, Eno. All right, see you. Eno Saras of the Athletic. Uh, check out all his great work there and on Twitter at Eno Saras. Uh, I got to dig in on that change up stuff a little bit more. Eno's going to beat me to it and have like eight different major leaguers who talk about it, and uh, he's going to have much more rich data. But I'm going to do my little X Y plot. While I'm waiting out the rain delay a little later, we'll see. Uh, We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to answer some of your texts. You can send them to 590-590 or tweet at me at Blake Murphy ODC. Uh, Big series coming up here. A little bit of a break you've gotten from the Jays. So maybe you have fresh questions here. Um, We're also going to go through the lineups. We know who the the Jays and Red Sox are trying out there. And we'll uh, go deep on Josh Winkowski and Ross Stripling. All that's next on Jays Talk Plus. On Sports at 590, the fan. More Leafs, more Raptors, more Blue Jays. The Fan Morning Show with J.D., Blake, and Ailish. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is a song called Dark Blue by Jax Mannequin, uh, written about Josh Winkowski's StatCast page. Every single metric just in dark blue. Not good. Having a hard time, Josh Winkowski is. See if the Jays' offense can get going against them. The Jays have been, obviously, better of late. They had won four in a row before losing on Sunday. Uh, Not a bat-heavy stretch necessarily, though. Still going through it a little bit. George Springer and Santiago Espinal, the only players kind of hitting above a league average rate over the last two weeks. Yeah, they got nine against the Yankees. That was great. They had that six-run inning against the Orioles to kind of get things started. But then just 11 runs over Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So I don't think they're out of the weeds yet. The Jays will face Josh Winkowski. We'll see how that goes. We're going to set, set that matchup up and tell you a little bit more about Winkowski before he gets optioned back down uh, in just a little bit here. We've got some texts in the text line. 
Uh, there are two here. Jason from Thornhill says, can someone tell me why Pop is sent to AAA, Kikuchi taking his spot, and they prefer Richards? It's a bad look. And then Steve from Brampton says, uh, in the early parts of the season, I get sending down optionable players so you don't lose someone on waivers. Uh, but at this stage where every win counts, shouldn't the emphasis be on having the best bullpen possible? I would agree. I will say six weeks remaining in the season is kind of an eternity for relief pitchers. I thought the move, like if we were in a vacuum, I thought the move was Kikuchi goes down. Now, Kikuchi can't be optioned without permission, but he had given permission per the reports around the team. He goes down, not necessarily for any reason other than to keep him stretched out because there are a couple double headers coming up. And there are a couple stretches where the Jays just don't have enough off days to manage those double headers without a sixth starter in there somewhere. Unless you really want to, you know, unless you think Manoa can go Max Scherzer mode the rest of the season and still be Alec Manoa come October, I think you need a sixth starter somewhere in there. So if you're looking ahead and it's two weeks from now and you've got to tag Kikuchi back in to be a starter and he's only throwing the odd inning or two in low leverage relief, I don't know what that looks like. Obviously, you can stretch them out in bullpen sessions and things like that. But I'm with you guys. I thought that pop going down was a little bit surprising. Um, the team has pretty consistently made moves that suggest they're higher on Trevor Richards than I am. I know that they don't have a lot of guys who can get swing and miss in that bullpen. So Trevor Richards striking out 11 over 9 is something they value. But we've got a pretty good sample other than like two-thirds of last year that Trevor Richards brings that strikeout power with a lot of walks and a lot of earned runs. So could have seen that one. I, I would guess that their answer would be, yeah, you just can't lose relief pitching depth this late in the season. And Zach Pop can go down to AAA and continue to work on stuff. He'd been really effective, but he'd also only had one strikeout uh, since joining the Jays. That 98-mile-an-hour sinker is awesome. But they might want... When they acquired him, I actually thought he might be a candidate to go down to Buffalo because if he's going to become a more leverage reliever in time, he's going to need to throw that slider a little bit more for swing and miss stuff, and it's a pretty good slider. So maybe that's part of it as well as they don't mind sending him down there because they have some developmental plans and maybe he'll be back up in September. That's the other thing to keep in mind here is we're a week away from roster expansion. So uh, they'll get at least they'll, they'll get one of those names back, um, whether it's Zach Pop, whether it's we still don't really know what happened with Julie Merriweather the other day. Uh, I know what we can probably assume because it's Julie Merriweather and he uh he left the a game in the middle of an inning on Sunday. But at last I checked, we didn't have a Merriweather update on what that was. So in any case, there are going to be... Wait, did we get a Merriweather update? No. Sorry, I saw someone tweet something. I thought they were tweeting me. My apologies. As I was trying to find Julian Merriweather update... Um, anyway, Julian Merriweather is on the way back at some point as well. Uh, so you're going to have a little bit of a crunch here and, and I guess they're just managing the crunch with, uh, Zach pop has options and deal with the rest of it when you get there.
Probably not the absolute best version of this bullpen for this series, but more changes could be ahead. Matt Gage is also hanging around somewhere. He's been tremendous at AAA. He's been pretty good when he gets a major league chance. They've got some decisions to make uh, over the next little bit here. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm with you guys. I understand that. But I, if it's just for a week, if there's a developmental purpose in mind, I, I can understand this kind of punts the decision a week down the line on who'd be the DFA guy or whatever. Uh, someone texted in Julian 60 day Merriweather. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, you, you've also got to clear a 40 spot for him if he's ready at some point. So we'll see how that goes. Um, another text in the text line from Eric and Guelph. Bill Burr is headlining Fenway. Which comedian could you say, see playing Rogers center? That's a, that's a big, big venue. Um, I know Fenway is too. Like, I don't, I don't even know what that would look like. Like if you got Mike Myers and I don't know, Martin short to go back on the, like, I'm trying to think who would pop a big number in like multiple demographics. I don't know. That's a really tough one. I th- I guess you don't have to go Canadian with it. Um, you know, my answer would have been probably Norm Macdonald before. I don't know. That's a tough question. Maybe I, I might just be missing the like parent. Uh, oh, Adam and Tottenham says Russell Peters. Maybe um, I'm not a huge fan personally. I, oh, well, not. I shouldn't say I'm not a huge fan. I haven't checked out a lot of his stuff. Um, this one comes from Brendan and Guelph. Thinking back to Sunday's game when Cole came out on the field screaming at Manoa, a uh, few things bring the boys together like a bench clearing incident. When you see guys sticking up for one another and stuff, it brings, it builds camaraderie. Uh, part of me wanted to see the benches empty. I don't know that you need to see the benches empty, but yeah, I think that was good. I think, I mean, that's a fun quote. That's uh, the guys getting his back and everything. I, I think those moments don't help. We've got a, a, a Jeff from Whitby says Russell Peters too. Okay. So the first, the only two responses are Russell Peters. So to your question earlier, Eric and Guelph, uh, the people think it's Russell Peters. So there you go. Uh, let's take a look at the lineups. Let's take a look at the pitching matchup. I still can't believe Tim Mays is back two weeks after dislocating his shoulder, by the way. Uh, that's where the Zach pop thing came in. He's been optioned down because Mays is back two weeks after dislocating his non-pitching shoulder. Uh, pretty remarkable. So, Josh Winkowski, who I was taking some shots at earlier. Actually, a former Blue Jays pick way, way back in the day. He was part of the Steven Matz trade with Yenzi Diaz, who is a bad reliever in AAA right now, and Sean Reed Foley, who is on the 60-day IL and hasn't gotten a lot of traction in the majors. Uh, Winkowski's still just 24, but you can't really be mad at that Matz trade given uh, how that turned out and what's going on with the other three. Winkowski was then part of that Benintendi, that larger Benintendi trade. Uh, that's how he landed in Boston. Maybe something in his minor league profile will click at the major league level. For right now, though, he has not carried that stuff over. He has not carried over the ability to miss bats. He has a 519 ERA. The component metrics see him as just about that 521 fielding independent pitching 473 expected ERA based on the stat casts numbers. And this really comes down to, if you can't miss bats at all, you're really going to struggle to be a major league pitcher. And that's obvious, but the degree to which Winkowski has not missed bats is pretty remarkable. He has a 6.6% swinging strike rate. 
That is in the first percentile in the entire league. So he's right at the bottom. He's not zero with percentile, but he's more or less right at the bottom in terms of swing and miss. 13.5% strikeout rate. Some guys get by in that territory, but he also has an 8% walk rate. So he's not a super, super command guy. He's just an okay command guy. The big thing he has going for him is a, a very high ground ball rate. So longer term, maybe you hope if he can develop a little bit more swing and miss stuff. And again, the swing and miss stuff was there in the minors, not at an elite level, but certainly a a better level than this. That the combination of being a high ground ball guy, not a high walk guy. And then if you can become even an okay swing and miss guy, maybe there's a, a package there. I don't know. We haven't seen it at the major league level yet, at least. The Blue Jays haven't seen him from Winkowski at all. Nobody on this team has faced him at the major league level. Um, here's how he looks, though. Here's here's what you'll see, and then we can get into some of the player stuff who might do well against a pitcher like Winkowski. He's going to throw a 94-mile-an-hour sinker about 40% of the time. As you'd expect, with a high ground ball pitcher who throws a lot of sinkers, that pitch is a ground ball machine. Now, despite that, it gets hit hard pretty often and for a pretty high batting average against. So it's one that maybe you're not going to be able to drive it for power. Maybe you won't even get it in the gaps. But it sure gets roped for singles a lot. He'll complement that with an 85-mile-an-hour slider. Throws that about 30% of the time. It's his only pitch that he can really get swing and miss with. He has about a 26% whiff rate with it. Uh, That's pretty low for a slider, uh, especially if it's your main out pitch. But it's all he's got to swing and miss. Um, It's been his best pitch for batted ball results as well. That's probably a case where if his third pitch was third, fourth, fifth pitches were a little more reliable, you might even see him starting to lead with the slider a little bit more given its results, but it's sinker, it's slider. And then you'll see four seam fastball, change up cutter all in kind of equal amounts as tertiary pitches. Uh, The cutter has been pretty good in a somewhat limited sample, the four-seamer and the changeup are not good. And part of that is I think there's not a lot of velocity separation between his changeup and his fastballs. And then as we just spoke to Eno about, if the sinker's your main weapon, it's a little harder for the changeup to play off of that. So in our discussion with Eno, that was about why Stripling maybe won't throw it a ton to righties, even though it's a very effective pitch overall. In Winkowski's case, he's got to play that off the sinker, and and that's a little tougher. So, which Jays do well against pitchers like Winkowski? And yeah, we have to add the caveat here that while the Jays have slumped, the the two kind of two-week slumps they've had this year, they were slumping against non-elite pitchers, guys who on paper they should do well against. So take this with a a grain of salt. But if we look at right-handed pitchers who throw sinkers in Winkowski's Velocity and spin range. You see very, very good numbers for Matt Chapman, Teoscar Hernandez, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. In the case of Teoscar Hernandez and Lourdes Gurriel Jr., given the seasons that they've had, I don't think it's surprising that a guy who gives up hard contact for singles a lot, the guys who match up well with him are the guys who have improved their own results by using more of the field. It's a reachable pitch. It's a hittable pitch, but you've got to kind of come outside the idea of pulling it for extra bases 
uh, if you're going to sit sinker. So not a huge surprise that Hernandez and Gurriel are doing well against it. Uh, pitches like that. Chapman one's maybe a little bit more surprising, but he's a pretty smart hitter up there. And if you're a pitcher relying on a, a non-elite pitch at that volume, it's just a, a good bet for him to figure it out. Here's how the Jays are going to line up against Winkowski. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. is in there at the three spot. Teoscar Hernandez is in there at the five spot. Matt Chapman in there at the seven spot. So you've got all three of the guys with a, kind of a plus indicator against Winkowski. You also have two lefties in the lineup. And we're not dealing with the hugest of samples when it comes to um, splits. Winkowski's only thrown 60 innings at the major league level. Um, so you'd have to, we'd have to dig into the minor league stuff a little bit more. Um, basically what the splits tell us right now is that he's bad against righties and he's slightly worse against lefties. Um, maybe those splits become more pronounced if he starts pitching better against righties. But for right now, I, I don't think there's like a huge splits thing. It's just, he's, he's pretty shaky against both sides. So here's that Jay's lineup. George Springer leads off and is designated hitter. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Alejandro Kirk catches Ross Stripling and hits fourth. Teoscar Hernandez, Bo Bichette, Matt Chapman, Kevin Biggio at second base hitting eighth. He got like two plate appearances over the last seven days. Uh, the seven days of last week, rather. Uh, we're not counting yesterday. Uh, really hasn't seen much playing time as Santiago Espinal uh, comes into form and Whit Merrifield's around now. And then, that's a nice little nod. Jackie Bradley Jr. getting the start in center field at Fenway. He knows that territory extremely well. As we've talked about with some Red Sox people since the Jays acquired him, he was actually playing right field a little bit more in Boston this year, in part because right field's really difficult there, uh, and he knows it well. So maybe he'll bounce around a little bit too. Uh, we'll see what happens if uh, if Atapia or Merrifield get in the game. But Jackie Bradley Jr. gets the start in his old stomping grounds. That group lines up behind Ross Stripling. Stripling, of course, had that tremendous start. First start back off the IL last week. It was the turnaround game. He didn't get the win, but threw six perfect and then got hit in the seventh, came out, and then the Jays have that big inning for him. Jimmy Garcia takes the win, but that's a Ross Stripling game. ZRA is now down to 293, even better as a starter. And most of the component metrics have him around three and a half. So even if he has some regression coming, He's regressing to the level of a really good starter still. And we talked to Eno. One of the most improved pitchers in baseball this year by Eno's stuff metric. Which is really encouraging. Elite walk rate. Elite chase rate. Doesn't get a ton of swing and miss. And does allow some hard contact. But basically this elite walk, elite chase, and I'm going to mix five pitches... The way to sum Stripling up, I think, is he gets guys to make bad decisions. And we hear a lot about swing decisions at the play for the Blue Jays. We talked to Chris Black and Joe Siddle about the Jays' approach with runners in scoring position and things like that. Ross Stripling's the type of guy that makes you make bad decisions because he's going to throw a lot of different pitches. He's comfortable throwing them to different parts of the plate in different sequences and playing them off each other differently. And yeah, he has a really, really good changeup, a changeup that... Again, by Eno's metric, is a top 50 pitch in all of baseball. Pretty good stuff. 
So yeah, he'll go fastball as his most common pitch overall. It's been pretty good, but maybe has some batted ball fortune. Uh, the changeup is the money pitch. He throws it more to lefties than to righties. 198 average against and a 33% whiff rate. I mentioned the lefty thing because the Red Sox have three of them in the lineup tonight. Then he'll go slider. Slider's actually his lead pitch against righties. Um, it's not elite for whiff stuff as far as sliders go, uh, but it gets pretty decent contact numbers, and he needs that as a second secondary offering um, so he can play the other things off of it. The curveball has been hit pretty hard this year, and then it's the sinker to righties that is kind of the newer thing for Stripling uh, this year. That's been a weak contact machine in a smallish sample. Stripling's faced the Red Sox, uh, the active Red Sox, 126 plate appearances, 319 expected weighted on base average, so not bad. Uh, you have to factor into that not all that sample is this version of Stripling, who's a little better. Player quality is not static. Uh, Eric Hosmer, Rafael Devers, and J.D. Martinez uh, have been shaky against him in a moderate sample, whereas Alex Verdugo, Xander Bogarts, and Enrique Hernandez have been good against him in a moderate sample. So it kind of comes out as a wash there. Here's how the Red Sox line up against him. Tommy Pham, Alex Verdugo, Xander Bogarts, Rafael Devers, J.D. Martinez, Christian Royal, Enrique Hernandez, Frenchy Cordero, and Clevin, <laughs> Clevin, Kevin Ploiecki. Um, so we don't get to see old pal Reese McGuire, he of the 400 batting average the last week or so. Um, not today. Anyway, Ploiecki will catch Josh Winkowski. Uh, we just, we have a thing for the KI last names today, I guess, in Boston. Uh, so yeah, three lefties in there. Mostly the Red Sox lineup you you expect at this point. Um, you know, five of those spots aren't going to change much day to day. We'll see how Stripling does. This is, uh, we're into the territory with Stripling now where it's kind of nudged over the course of the season. Early on, obviously you're just figuring out if Stripling can take a rotation spot. Can he fill in for Hyunjin Ryu? And then it's like, yeah, of course he can. And then he nudged from being kind of a four-inning guy to a five-inning guy. We've seen him go six a couple times now. And as he continues to have success, you keep running into this kind of uh, chicken or egg thing of, was he having all this success in part because they take him out at the right times and they don't overextend him and they don't let him see a lineup a third time through much? Or should you let him try because he's been so good and until he shows you he can't, uh, why not? I, I don't know that uh, a first game of a series coming off an off day with a very well-rested bullpen, I don't know that that's the day they'll try it unless he's just absolutely motoring. But it's worth keeping an eye on. Jays, by the way, do have that well-rested bullpen. Off day yesterday, fresh arm and Tim Mesa. Um I don't know. Is he going to pitch in a sling so he can catch? I, the two-week return time for dislocated shoulder is wild. Uh, Jordan Romano hasn't pitched in a couple days. Jimmy Garcia, Anthony Bass, David Phelps, um, Yusei Kikuchi, all guys who haven't pitched in a couple days now. And then, of course, everyone was off yesterday. So you got a really well-rested bullpen in there. You'd like the J. The bullpen's also been very good of late, despite the non-elite swing and miss stuff, um, putting up big numbers. Red Sox had yesterday off too, so their bullpen comes in uh, pretty well-rested. They got Matt Strom back at this point. It's not a very good bullpen, though. It's a bottom five bullpen. Yeah, you lost Tanner Houck 
And I'm sure losing Chris Sale, James Paxton, Nate Yavaldi, uh as starters on and off over the course of the year hasn't helped with the bullpen's workload. It's just not that good a bullpen, though. So um, the interesting part will be the Red Sox have two, le- two lefties they trust. The Jays have that 8-9 lefty-lefty with a couple names on the bench. Although Tapia is a lefty on the bench. Um, so you have Espinal, Jansen, and Merrifield, who you could all pinch hit with if the Red Sox bring in one of those lefties um, for the Biggio, Jackie Bradley Jr. part of the order. I also question if Biggio and Jackie Bradley Jr. are quality enough hitters for the Red Sox to worry about that. Because then you get George Springer as a a lefty-righty matchup at the top of the order because of the three-batter minimum. Uh, Or you have Chapman going lefty-righty to start that off. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, We saw the other day... The Yankees not care about that. Let Lou Trevino go for a couple extra outs uh, and face some platoon disadvantages. Uh, the Jays were also a little short on um, possible pinch hitters at that point. They'd used just about everyone, everyone except Danny Jansen. And then you would have had to, I was kind of hoping, like obviously if the ninth inning, you're down a run, you got to do everything you can. And if you tie it up, you deal with it after. Um, the idea of Danny Jansen having pinch hit in that game and then you get to a scenario where one of Jansen or Kirk has to play in the field would have been funny. A couple more texts before we wrap it up. Um, a few people also said Dave Chappelle or Eddie Murphy in the text line. I, I thought the spirit of the question was um, a Canadian, like because of the, the Bill Burr Boston connection. So I'm sorry for not naming the, uh, the bigger ones. Um, yeah. I'm also not, a, I, I don't, I'm not as up on my, uh, stand-up comedy. I just watched the Red Sox play defense instead. We'll see how that goes uh, behind Josh Winkowski tonight. Again, uh, first pitch is scheduled for 7.05. Ben Wagner will be on the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Blair and Barker will have Jays talk for you post-game. Joe Siddle on Blue Jays Central on the TV side. We had a great chat with him and Chris Black earlier. Right now, though, the word out of Boston is that we are expecting a delay at some point in this game, probably to start the game, uh, the tarps down at Fenway. So keep an eye out for that. Luckily, I don't have to uh, do all the rambling to fill time just this last minute here. Uh, we'll see if this one doesn't go. Maybe we get a third doubleheader in the next little bit. It's a year of doubleheaders for the Blue Jays after almost never having any of them. Um, Nate Pearson, by the way, scheduled to throw a bullpen Wednesday at the player development complex. Uh, that's per Arden's welling of sports. And he's nearing a return. Taylor Sacedo throwing one tomorrow in Buffalo as simulated outing for him. So a couple more relievers to add to the mix as they work their way back. Uh, again, Ross Stripling tonight, Josh Winkowski, Jays with, uh, George Springer back at the top of the lineup. Chapman, Guriel, Teoscar, all guys who profile well against Winkowski. We'll see how that goes. We'll see if the Jays can keep it rolling. And if they can, over these three games, put the death knell in the Red Sox faint wildcard chances. We'll be back tomorrow, three to five, to break it all down. Uh, thank you to Eno, Chris, Joe, and the other Chris, Chris Cotillo, for coming on. Thanks to JR and Andrew behind the glass. Fan drive time's next, and we'll be back at three o'clock tomorrow. Jays Talk Plus on Sports F590, The Fan.